continue to uh, look at who Jesus is so that we may believe, as John says later in John 20. Uh, So open your Bibles to John chapter 6 with me as we follow along. And uh, as we get into John chapter 6, as you're turning to your Bibles, I keep saying this, but I really encourage you to go get your Bible and to open it up or the app, whatever it may be as we gather together to see what God has to say. But in John chapter 6, it is the longest chapter we have in the New Testament. It is an amazing thing, and it provides this amazingly rich, redemptive, historical perspective on Moses and God's saving work of his people Israel in what we know as the Exodus. This is an amazing work. And John wants us to see something. He wants us to see something very important. He wants us to see that Jesus is a greater Moses. And the gospel as even a greater Exodus. Just as Moses led the Israelites out of bondage, when we read about that in Exodus, out of Egypt, into the land of the promise, the promised land, so Jesus came to lead the family of God on the ultimate Exodus. A journey out of sin and death and into the eternal promised land with him in heaven, with a new heaven and a new earth. But as you've turned your Bibles, as we reflect upon how God has revealed himself specifically to us in his word, have you ever come to this situation in your life? Have you ever come to a situation in your life where you just felt inadequate to fulfill the task that is in front of you? I have. Fairly regularly, if I'm honest with myself. And here in this passage in John chapter 6, and we'll be reading from John chapter 6, verses 1 to all the way to the 21, we see something very interesting as we are introduced, or not really introduced, but we are shown two characters who are faced with inadequacy, but inadequacies that Jesus is not faced with at all. And even further, showing more of who he is. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John 6, follow along with me, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and and two fish, but what are these for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, and about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them uh, to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they ate, then when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may get be lost. So they gathered them up, and... 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had, who had eaten. When the people saw the sign 
that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came in verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him onto the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to continue to worship you. Uh, Lord, we do long for the time that we can gather together once again to hear each other sing, to hear your word preached, and to hear your word read together. And Lord, we look forward to that time. But Lord, during this time, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage us as your church here in London. And God, we pray for all churches here in London that are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And specifically, we pray for Chelsea Green, and we pray that you would be with Pastor Peter and the staff there and the elders as they continue to seek to shepherd the flock which you have entrusted to them. Lord, I pray that they would be faithful disciples themselves who are Christ learners, who desire to know you more and more, who go out and make disciples of Jesus Christ, proclaiming that in you there is life, there is hope, there is salvation, there is redemption. God, I pray that you would use them and that you would bless them as they seek to be faithful to your call. And Lord, as we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, God, I am keenly aware of my own inadequacies, but Lord, will you not use this time to magnify and to glorify your name? God, will you use this sermon to bring joy to your people, salvation to the lost, and glory to your name, and amen. John chapter 6, in verses 1 to 15, we see right off the bat that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. If you grew up in the church or have any idea of the Bible, you are very familiar with this story. And it's very easy to come to this story and be like, I've heard it already, so I'm going to shut off. Don't. Don't shut off, because this is the word of the Lord. But after this, in verse 1, we see after this, after what we were looking at last week as Jesus had the interaction with, uh, with, the, with the Jewish people and the religious leaders about how he is greater than Moses, after this, Jesus goes away with his disciples. It's been a busy time of ministry, so they get away, and he goes to the wilderness. Luke calls it the wilderness. The Gospel of Luke calls it a wilderness, and he gets away. But there's a large crowd that is following him as he and his disciples begin to walk away. And when they get there, as Jesus walks up to the mountain, which is very much the same sort of imagery that we see as Moses in the Old Testament walks up to Mount Sinai to be with God. And you can see how John is painting the parallels between Moses and Jesus himself, but how Jesus is a greater, he is greater than Moses. And he sits there, he travels to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he goes up to the mountain, 
But this is the time of the Passover. And this is probably why there was a crowd that was following Jesus. During the Passover, Jews would have a pilgrimage from all over the countryside, and they would come to Jerusalem to worship and to remember. They would come to remember how God had called them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. It was a time when they would celebrate what God had done, how he had passed over the firstborn of the Israelites, but went and he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And when the people would gather together, they would be reflecting on all of these things that God had done, and they would be specifically going to passages like in Genesis 1 to 8, as they reflect upon how God created the heavens and the earth, and how he called a man named Abraham, who was nobody out of the land of the Chaldeans and brought him to be a people to be holy, distinct, separate for him. They would reflect upon Exodus 11 to 16 that talk about how God brings out a seemingly impossible situation. How he brings out these people who he promised he would care for who he promised Abraham would happen, he brings him out of Egypt and brings him to the promised land. Or in number six, where we see how God begins to provide once again. There are strong similarities we are reading when we see this story in John 6 with what we see in the Old Testament, how God used and how God provided for his people. So as Jesus, during this time of Passover, as he's sitting there up on the hill on the mountain, He looks up, he sees the crowd coming, and he then looks to his disciple named Philip. Imagine being that, kind of singled out. Hey, Philip, he says. That's not really what he says, but. He says, Philip, what are we going to do? We got all these people coming. Probably as far as I can see. I can see people coming. What are we going to do? Philip's response is very interesting. But before we even get there, I'm reminded of even another instance where in, in Numbers 11:13, where Moses is faced with the hunger of the Israelites, and Moses comes along and says, "Where am I to get meat to give to all of these people?" He says, "Where am I going to get it? For they weep before me and say, "Give us meats that we may eat." And this is again another reminder for us of how Jesus is greater than Moses because as Moses is faced with the inadequacy of the situation where he's got a million plus people and they're all starving and he's like, where are they going to eat? I don't have any food. Moses is faced with his own inadequacies. Jesus is not because as he asks that question to Philip, he's not saying it as a legitimate, hey, I don't know where we're going to get this food. He's saying it as a test. He's saying it as a test to this man named Philip, one of his disciples. But he is better. And Philip's response in verse 7 is that there's not enough money to buy food. So he produces statistics as to how they cannot meet this criteria. That they could not be done. It is impossible, he says. Not even 200 denarii. Eight months wages, God. Even Jesus, Jesus, eight months wages would not be enough to pay for enough food for these people to even be satisfied, he says. It's just not enough. Are you like that? I can be. 
My prayer over the last couple of years is that God would use us, Noah, that God would use us to multiply, that we would be faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is the core. That is the mission of every church here in London, is to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our job. But as we seek to be faithful in that, that God would use us to even plant another gospel-preaching church. And, what, and I pray this. I pray this almost every day. God, help us to do this. Help us to be this. And this is almost every decision we make is based upon this idea of being faithful disciples ourselves who make disciples of Jesus Christ. We want people to mature in their walk with God. That is our goal. But then we're faced with this reality that suddenly we're in a year and a half pandemic where it shuts everything down and that we can't do anything. But God, I still want us to be able to do that. I I believe that lines up with your call for us. We want to multiply. That's our job. That's the task you've given us. God, there's not enough people. There's not enough money. There's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. There's not enough. And that's what Philip does. And that's exactly what Philip does. He just produces statistics. This is the thing, this, this is funny to me. I had this, this, this conversation about, uh, with, with a bunch of people who like math. I don't like math. Okay, I, I, I get it, I understand it. It's important, it makes, you know, all these things, right? Physics, you, you could talk to Jonathan about it. It's way above my head. I did high school math, that was it. I was glad I got out of that. This blows all mathematical equations apart. It doesn't meet it. Philip comes and he says, not even, there's not enough money. To, to a group of people, Jesus himself did not have a place in where he could lay his head. He had no money. There was no money in the purse to pay for any food, any amount of food. And Philip is well aware of this, and he, possesses, he poses the same problem to Jesus. The same Jesus that he saw just got a man who was paralyzed for 38 years to walk again. You see why Jesus is testing him? Who do you think I am? And I respond to this, maybe I need to trust more. To the situation that may seem impossible. To the task that God has given me, given you, given us to do whatever it may be may seem impossible. Now, there's another disciple in the area, right? His name's Andrew. And he comes along in in verse 8, and he says, hey, look, Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But, but, what are they, what are they for so many? How about Andrew's response? He even doubts the value of his own suggestion. What about you? We're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm too quiet. I'm too shy. I struggle with talking with people. I don't have enough money I don't make enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm too young. I'm too old. We all have at some point doubted that God won't give us all that we need for the task that he has called us to do. We all have. 
Even those who were closest to Jesus did. Jesus asked a simple question. How are we going to feed them? The response should have been, I don't know, but you can do it. Because they have just seen Jesus do all the signs that those crowd of 5,000 people were coming to see. They had firsthand knowledge. See, the timing of the feeding of the 5,000, though, is not coincidental. It is occurring just before the Passover, the meal that inaugurated Jesus's, or sorry, Israel's journey through the wilderness like we were talking about. As we look at John 6, we have to keep the idea of the exodus, of how God called his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land in the back of our minds. We have to keep it there. Jesus didn't come to give elements of the Passover meal, but to be the Passover meal himself. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as we talked about with John the Baptist declaring very loud. He is enough. He will supply more than what, what is ever needed for everything that is needed. The gospel tells us over and over again that the impossible can happen. And the gospel starts with you and me because outside of Christ, we were dead in our trespasses. The Bible is very clear on this. We were dead. And dead meaning dead, dead. Not like unconscious or or something like that. Like dead, like a dead bloated body at the bottom of the ocean, dead. In Ezekiel, as we've seen these videos, these wonderful gospel videos, it describes it as dead, dry bones, not even flesh. That's who we were. Outside of Christ, we were dead. How in the world does what dead come alive again? It's impossible. But the gospel comes, we are dead in our sin. We have sinned against the holy God. We are deserving, our right punishment is hell, is eternal condemnation. We are dead. We were in an impossible situation. But Jesus Christ does the impossible. He steps down from his throne. He takes on humanity to be born of the Virgin Mary, to grow up and to die the most hideous death we could ever imagine on the cross for you and for me, taking God's wrath upon himself so that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior will be saved because Christ absorbs the wrath that was due for me. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope. There is no life. There is Nothing. And in verse 11, it comes along here, and Jesus gives the people as much as they want for what is needed. Just imagine this, right? You're just sitting there. You're like, there's 5,000 men, so we have no idea how many people are. We're talking families, right? Way more than 10,000, like lots of people. Lots of people. And they're all sitting down in the grass, right? It probably goes as far as they can see. And, and the guy at the very back's like probably yelling, hey, what's going on? He probably doesn't even know why he's there because he just saw the crowd. You know how in the videos people just start lining up when someone just lines up? So one guy stands outside of a door and kind of goes like this and just waits and then people start lining up. It was probably that guy. But Jesus comes and he stands there and he takes the food that Andrew has just portrayed, has just given to him, these five loaves, two fish, and he just starts praying, thanking God for this. And he starts breaking the pieces up. 
you know, starts with one basket, and then another, and then another, and then another, and another. Everyone starts eating. Everyone starts going for seconds or thirds, whatever it may be. And the text is very clear as to the outcome of this, of this amazing miracle that shows that my Savior is Lord over creation. He comes, and it says this later on, that they were filled, that they didn't want anything more, that they had eaten to their fill. Jesus gave the people as much as they wanted for what they needed. What does this show you about our God? Because John is written so that we may believe. Our God isn't stingy. Jesus will provide for his people. I think of Elijah in 2 Kings who who fed uh, 20 people with 20 loaves of bread. Or I think of Moses in Exodus 16, which we just talked about. But all of these people are fade in comparison to what Christ has done. All of those people depended upon God to do something. But Jesus makes it happen. He prays and he breaks bread. Our Lord is Lord over creation. In Deuteronomy 18.15, we see that the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses writing. From your brothers, it says, it is to him you shall listen. In Acts 3.22-23, Peter tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it's to the point that by the time we get to verse 15, the crowd begins to say, look, this is the prophet that we were talking about. And their response, let's make him king. Let's make him king. But they've forgotten that Jesus, that the kingship of Jesus was a spiritual kingship, not a physical Jesus came to save them from their greatest need. Their greatest need was not to be freed from the Romans, but to be freed from their sin. Jesus' kingdom was not derived from this world and wasn't advanced by our military or political means. It would lead him to the cross where he would purchase by his blood his people. And his people would be with him for eternity. The greatest need of the people wasn't for them to be free from Roman rule, but to be freed from sin. And our God supplied more than they could possibly need, possibly want for what they need. He would, be, he would do what only God can do, and he would do it completely. He is able to take away the sins of the world. He is able to provide. He is able to give as much as we need. As I was reflecting upon this story, I was thinking of an event in my own life. Uh, When Steph and I were first married, I was working four jobs. And I was going to school. And if I could give you any advice that's the most practical, don't do it. Just be patient and wait. (laughs) But I was working four jobs. Two of them were in churches. And I was a PSW back when they made all those rules about PSWs uh, for an organization. And I was driving home. I was on the afternoon shift. It was like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. It was dark. 
and we were having a rough go. We could not, it was difficult to put food on the table. And I was angry. I was frustrated. I was like, God, I'm doing what you called me to do. You wouldn't let me do anything else. Because if you've ever heard my story, I'm like, I, I went into kind of the whole Bible college thing, kicking and screaming sort of thing. Like, God, you didn't allow me to do anything else. I could be making other money, doing other things. I, I'm, I think I'm seeking to be faithful to you, Lord. I'm, I'm throwing it back in his face. I'm angry. I'm beating the, 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 the steering wheel of my car, which was still to this day the best car I ever had. First car always is. It was like riding in a cloud. I'm angry. And then by the time I get home, I kind of let all my anger out. Repented for my anger, the whole nine yards, the whole cycle. And I get there, Steph is in bed, she's sleeping, and on the dinner table is a check. And I'm just confronted with the reality of how I didn't trust. And it's not the only time. It's not the only time that God has provided. Did things get easier in the moment? No. Did God provide? Yes. Was I able to pay the bills, a little bit of the bills, and get some food on the table? Yes. These are things that we need. Why is it that we doubt that God will give us more than what we want for everything we need? There is no account in the Bible at all that gives us any other thought than that that he will give us always more than we want for what we need. The question is, is understanding what we need. That's the hard one. I've I've probably used this story before, but I remember as a kid in high school complaining to my dad that I needed to get to school, and dad, you you should buy a car so I can get to school. Spoiled, entitled child, right? God, buy me a car so I can get to school. My school was walking distance, by the way. 45-minute walk, but it was still walking distance. Or I could have taken the bus. My dad's response to me was this. What do you need? Well, I, I, need, to, I need a car. And I'm like, no, no, no. Where do you need to go? He's like, you need to get to, I need to get to school. He's like, so you need to get to school. That's your need. You need to get to school. Yes. He said, here's two bucks. <laughs> Take the bus. I don't know if it was two dollars then, but... I think we need to put into, on, on a side, as a, as a rabbit trail, we need to understand what our need is. I don't need to buy the fanciest of clothes. I don't need to have the fanciest of cars or house or any of these things. I need a roof over my head, food on my table, and clothes on my back. That's what I need. In our culture, we have this mentality that's almost ingrained into us, and I struggle with this myself, of keeping up with the Joneses, and we don't. But Jesus comes here and he provides it. God will supply. God is amply sufficient for any of our needs. Let us step out in a faithful obedience to what God has called us to do and to be, knowing that he will provide more than we want for everything that we need. Just as God supplied more than what Israel needed in the Exodus. Think about this, right? As the Exodus was coming in the wilderness, later on, after Numbers 11, God provides manna. 
And they get more than what they could provide, more than they need, to the point that God actually makes the promise when it comes to the Sabbath, collect what you need. Only collect what you need. If you collect more than you need, everybody's gonna know because it's gonna be something ripe coming out of your tents. Only have whatever you need. What was their response? They still complained. (laughs) But God comes And I'm confronted with this, that God will give me everything I want for everything I need. More than I want for everything I need. And how do I even know that? Because he's also the one who walks on water. See, Jesus not only had the ability to, I don't know, what what would be the scientific, like manipulate the molecules of the fish and the bread. Have you ever tried to walk on water? And someone's like, oh, you can walk on water, it just needs to be frozen. I'm like, that's not water, that's ice. So before someone comes and gets smart with me, it's ice, it's different. I know the three states of H2O. But Jesus comes and he walks on water in verse 19. As he's walking there, it gets dark in verse 16. Evening comes, so the disciples are like, where's Jesus? Because he's up on the mountain. They're like, well, let's go. They get into a boat and they head off to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus hadn't been there. And in verse 18, they had been rowing. In verse 19, the, sorry, in verse 18, the wind begins to blow. In verse 19, they've been rowing about three or four miles, which is about the halfway point in the, in, 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 in the sea. And then Jesus just starts walking on the water. And this isn't like a short walk. We're talking three or four miles. And Jesus begins to walk on the water. And as the disciples begin to see them, they do what is natural. They begin to be a little bit scared. They freak out about because there's a guy walking on water. If you do not get freaked out about a guy walking on water, I would wonder if you're human. So their fear is legitimate. But Jesus' response is an amazing response as we see here. But we see who Jesus is. This wasn't a trick to show off to his disciples. This was to show his power that he is sovereign over the world he created. Hebrews 1, verse 3, a great passage for us to, to come and get to. It comes along and it says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is who our God is. And he comes and he, he walks on water. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God alone rules over the seas. We see this in Psalm 29. We see it in Psalm 89. We see it in Psalm 101. Over and over again, it is God and God alone who rules over the sea. And Jesus gets up and he walks across it in the middle of a storm. Showing that he is indeed Lord over creation that if he can do that, he will provide for all of our needs. And then he says in verse 20, it is I. The Greek is emphatic. It actually says, I am, ego, me." This is Jesus who supplies more than we could want for all that we need. This is Jesus who calms the sea. He can walk on water. Who else could walk on water but God. Job 9, verse 8, 
It's a great verse. He says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Jesus, just as the first exodus involved a crisis at sea as they were met with the Red Sea and the Egyptian army at the back of them and the need for a supernatural deliverance. So Jesus responded to his fear-filled disciples walking to them on the Sea of Galilee, securing their safe delivery to the other side. On another note, did you see that there could possibly have been another miracle in verse 21? And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Imagine that one. So what do we do with all this? How do we wrap this up and think about who our God is? I'm reminded of Isaiah. Isaiah 43, verses 2 and a, uh, 3a are a very great passage. When you pass to the waters, I will be with you, God says, to his people, whom he has actually brought through great punishments by this point. Now he's talking about restoring them. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. Why? Verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And here's the main idea. We can trust God to meet every need, whatever needs we have, by giving us what is for our best. And I know we may not know how the Lord is going to meet our needs today. I know. I know some of you have hit a wall. I know some of you are tired. Uh, you don't even know how you don't even know how you're going to get the strength to get up in the morning. You don't know how you're going to get to work. You don't know how you're going to watch over your kids and do homeschooling and walk and work from home all at the same time. I know that you are tired and weary. That you lack strength to go on. Maybe practically you're like me when we were first married and you've got a bill that you need to pay and quite frankly you just don't know how that's going to happen. You may not know how the Lord is going to meet your needs today, but I can tell you this right now. He met his needs, the needs of his people, on the day he brought them out of Egypt. And he met his people's needs on the day Jesus took upon himself to feed the big crowd. We can trust God to meet whatever need we have by giving us what is for our best. So remember with me, Remember with me again how Jesus fed the 5,000 because I need to be reminded of these things. As, I, as we face together and individually, as we face the impossible, what seems to be impossible, as we seek to be faithful disciples ourselves, as we seek to be just good parents or, or a good student or a good neighbor, as we, as we seek to be these things that seem impossible even in the midst of this pandemic. We need to reflect upon how God, Jesus himself, fed the 5,000. The needs surpassed the resources. 
What the disciples had in the money bag was insufficient for their needs. Have you been there? Are you there now? In the presence of Jesus, money is not the answer. Human, inv- inv- in, in, sorry, human uh, ingenuity is not the answer. Leadership and initiative from the disciples wasn't even the answer. The situation called for Jesus. We are inadequate, and that's the point. I think this pandemic has caused many of us to see how inadequate we are. Praise God. Now let's get on our knees. Let us pray, because we have a Savior who can supply. Let us call to one another and see how we need help and and how we can encourage and, and supply some of those needs. He made five barley loaves and two fish enough for 5,000. And he can make our stumbling inadequacy enough to meet the need. We can trust God to make whatever needs we have by giving us what is for our best. Let us rest in him. (laughs) The thing that is so boggling to me is how the Bible says that all the promises of Christ are yes and amen. Patterns find fulfillment. Prophecies come true. Hopes are realized. Yearnings of, 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 of ours are satisfied at last. Jesus has come, the new, the new Moses, the new David, the prophet, the priest, the king, incarnate word who walks on water. On June 13th, we are coming together as a church to celebrate what God has done. Not only do I need to look to the Bible about what God did to the people in in the Exodus, not only do I need to look to, not only do I get the chance to look at what God did or what Jesus did with with feeding 5,000, but I watch this video that hopefully soon you will be able to watch yourself, and I hear a story of how we as a church hit a time when we thought we were in an impossible situation. And the response of us was simply this, to pray. And out of that, God provided. 80 years of God's faithfulness. We reflect upon, yes, the hardships, but when I see and reflect upon the hardships of, of us as a, as a body over 80 years, I see God's faithfulness and how he has always provided even in the midst of the impossible. Is our God not the one who fed 5,000 with two fish and five pieces of bread? Is he not the one who walks on water? Is he not the one who provided over and over again in, in your life for everything you could possibly need? Maybe it wasn't in the way that you thought. Maybe it wasn't even in the way that you prayed. But how did he provide for you? Brothers and sisters, I know some of you are in a time when some things just seem impossible. But I know that we can trust God to meet whatever needs we have by giving us what is for our best. May we know, may we not, may we know who our God is. May we know how our Lord can meet our needs today, namely beginning with, starting with, our desperate need for salvation and how he has provided in that way. We can trust God to meet every 
needs, every need, whatever our need is, whatever our need is, by giving us what is for our bests. Let us continue to praise the God who provides for the impossible. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. I reflect upon my state.